Welcome to Live from New York. I'm Zane Asher. This is First Move, and here is your need to know. Stimulating the market, stocks gained on hopes of U.S. aid talks. Vaccine optimism. Dr. Anthony Fauci expresses confidence on development of a COVID treatment. And working from home with a difference. The Prime Minister of Barbados explains her new plan to attract visitors. It is Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Ash and my colleague Julia Chatterley. So good to have you with us once again. Uh, let's begin with a look at the action that's happening right now on Wall Street. U.S. stocks are on track for another day of solid gains after a strong start to September trading yesterday. Uh, the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 start the session at record highs again. All this as we begin to receive important new readings on the U.S. jobs market. Fresh numbers out before the bell show that 428,000 private sector jobs were added to the U.S. economy last month. That is a stronger reading than in July, but a weaker than uh, number than we had been expecting. We'll find out how the overall jobs market did in August when the U.S. releases its encompassing uh, jobs report on Friday. It has been a strong day of trading so far in Europe, despite some disappointing economic data from Germany. Retail sales there unexpectedly fell almost 1% in July. It is the second straight monthly drop. Asia-Pacific stocks were mixed. Australia led the way with an almost 2% advance. New numbers show the Australian economy officially entering recession. Investors believe the Australian Central Bank will need to announce fresh stimulus. And the stimulus watch continues in the U.S. as well. And that is where we begin today's drivers. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi issues a statement after speaking with U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin saying, quote, sadly, this phone call made clear that Democrats and the White House continue to have serious differences understanding the gravity of the situation. This after Secretary Mnuchin urged lawmakers to approve more money to combat the pandemic during a congressional hearing. Christine Romans joins us live now with more. So, Christine, just given the fact that there are millions of Americans whose livelihoods are at stake, how have both sides been willing to show compromise here? Well, you know, way back on May 15th, the House Democrats, the House passed this HEROES Act, $3.5 trillion of aid. That was going to be more checks, more subsidies for people who've been out of work, you know, extra unemployment benefits, uh, funding for state and local governments, a big, huge $3.5 trillion package. And that was just a no-go with Republicans. And, and Republicans have countered now many, many weeks later with uh, about a trillion dollars, um, a trillion dollars in, in stimulus, a fourth round of stimulus. The Democrats have come back and lowered their kind of core demands to 2.2 to 2.4 trillion. But you just don't have the Republicans budging here on a trillion dollars in more stimulus. So while all sides say they want to help these out-of-work Americans and they want to help Main Street, really what you have here is an argument over size and scope of the next of uh, the next round here. You'll hear everyone say we want to have more checks out to American households. But deciding on that has been a real problem. And, and the size has been the real the sticking point here. So what's at stake here, particularly, A, as we gear up for an election here in the U.S., but also for low-wage earners, those who, who are really in dire straits financially? Okay, so low-wage earners have the most 
to, to risk here. I, and that's and that's quite honestly the, the sad truth here. I mean, this has been such an asymmetric crisis. The people on the front lines of the job crisis are low-wage workers, predominantly low-wage workers in retail, in leisure and hospitality, and in restaurants. And when you look at, for example, just the ADP number that just uh, came out today, 400 and some thousand, 428,000 new jobs in the private sector, uh, most of those were in, in the services um, sector. And, and many of them, the largest single kind of size was large companies hiring people back. I'm very worried, worried about these low-wage workers. We saw the CDC, of all things, of all agencies, the CDC saying that, uh, w- that, that people could be, won't be evicted if they don't pay their, their rent until the end of the year. But rents will be, have to be repaid at some point, right? And that's where that extra money is so important, those subsidized checks for American families and subsidized unemployment benefits. And you've had a month now without any of that kind of funding flowing. You're going to see that in economic numbers. You're going to certainly see that uh, as a potential to kind of derail the small recovery we've had this summer. All right, Christine Romans, live for us there. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Facebook and Twitter says Russia is targeting Americans on their platforms with disinformation again in the final weeks before the 2020 election. Facebook says it removed a small network of fake accounts after receiving a tip from the FBI. Donny Sullivan joins us live now. So, Donny, what more can you tell us here? Hey, Zania, this is a very significant update here on foreign interference. People tied to the same Russian troll group that interfered in the 2016 U.S. presidential election are back again, Facebook says, uh, basing, uh, following a tip, I should say, from the FBI. Now, this is by far the most insight we have into what Russians are doing right now, today, to try and use social media to covertly insert themselves into the American national conversation. The FBI's tip to Facebook all centers around a website called Peace Data. It poses as an independent left-wing online magazine, and it recruited real unwitting American writers contributed to it and it paid them. The sorts of stories popping up there were attacks on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris from the left, a tactic we saw Russia use in 2016 when, according to U.S. prosecutors, they tried to use social media to split the Democratic vote. There were some criticisms of Trump and U.S. foreign policy, racial inequality in the U.S. in there too, as one might expect from a real left-wing magazine. Um, But the good news, I guess, here is that this was in its infancy. It hadn't gone viral as such and wasn't solely focused on the election. But the bad news, of course, saying is the fact that Russians are doing this, and this probably wasn't the only example that's out there. And and Donnie, just tell us a bit more about some of the fake profile pictures generated using AI specifically. Is this the first time that we've seen this specific tactic being used? It is our, the first time we've seen it from this particular Russian group. Um, you know, this is where things get very dystopian and, and pretty crazy. So Peace Data recruited real American writers. But to do that, the site had to have an editor and that editor had to look uh, real and convincing. And this is where you enter Alex Lacusta. And I want to show you um, his, his Twitter account. Now, that account doesn't look particularly suspicious. Uh, but the picture there of Lacusta, the man in the spectacles, that is not a picture of a real person. Experts who analyze this uh, tell us that picture, that face was generated by artificial intelligence, deep fake technology. So before back in 2016, a good way to spot a fake account was if they were using images that might have been stolen from somebody else's account. But now with these advances in technology and deep fake technology, trolls and, and information opera- inf- information operation uh Operators are, are are using this technology to try and evade detection. So 
Zane, very murky waters we are all uh, swimming in online, uh, a messy online information ecosystem, and all just with 20, uh, 62 days uh, to November's election. Yeah, it's scary just how sophisticated the technology is becoming. All right, Donnie O'Sullivan, life was there. Thank you so much. And later on the show, we're going to be hearing about Microsoft's efforts to tackle fake content as well. White House advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci believes a COVID-19 vaccine could be approved sooner than expected. He says a shot could be authorized before the completion of clinical trials, which could put us on track for a vaccine by the end of the year. Elizabeth Cohen joins us live now. So, Elizabeth, I think the question that everybody wants to know is how do you expedite a vaccine safely? Zane, I think the word expedite actually isn't the right word here. Here's the way the vaccine trials work. You say, I'm going to try this out in 30,000 people, and you check it along the way. Imagine you're baking a batch of cookies, and you check it. You open up the oven door to see how it's doing. It is possible that partway through the trial, you see, wow, a lot of people got infected with COVID. And then when you take a look, those people were the ones who got the placebo. People who got the placebo, which is basically saline, got infected and got sick with COVID. But people who got the vaccine, they didn't get sick with COVID. If you notice this in significant numbers, and that's an important phrase I'll get back to in a minute. If you notice this in significant numbers before the end of the trial, you actually have a moral obligation to say, whoa, wait a second, this vaccine is working. We need to give this to people. Here's a couple points. One, what's a significant number? You know, biostatisticians might have one idea. Other people might have another idea. There might be some disagreement over what a significant number is. What, is it, what does a sickness mean? There are ways to sort of define these things differently and reasonable people can disagree. Also, I will tell you that the experts that I've spoken to think it is highly, highly, highly unlikely that there will be a very early signal on this vaccine. Could it finish early? It's possible. But they think it is extraordinarily unlikely that it'll be by November 3rd, which is Election Day. And that's what people are fearing, is that the president will put pressure and say, hey, let's get this vaccine out by November 3rd. To have really good data by November 3rd, the experts that I'm talking to say they really think that's quite unlikely. And Dr. Fauci hasn't named November 3rd either. He keeps saying the end of the calendar year. That's an almost two-month difference. That's a big difference. Zane? And at the same time, how should the FDA or other health officials who are senior up, how should they go about making sure that they convince the public, if this vaccine does come out sooner than expected, that it is safe and effective? I got to tell you, I think that's going to be a tough sell. I mean, even without the talk of, you know, early, you know, could we end the trials earlier? Americans are suspicious about this. When you name your vaccine effort Operation Warp Speed, it doesn't make you feel great about the safety of this vaccine. So even before we were talking about ending it early, uh, Americans were sort of a little bit uh, antsy about this. We did a poll, CNN did a poll August around 12th to 15th, where we said, do you want to get the vaccine? And 40% of the people we polled this was in the U.S., said, no, I don't want to get it, even if it's free and easy to access. That's not great. That means that when a vaccine comes out, even if it's stellar, even if the data is gold standard, amazing, it is going to be difficult to convince a good chunk of the United States to get it. That may be harder or as hard as developing the vaccine in the first place. All right, uh, Elizabeth Cohen, live for us there. Thank you so much. Thanks.
The COVID-19 pandemic has pushed Australia into recession for the first time in almost 30 years. Growth shrank to 7% last quarter. That's the sharpest decline on record. Australia is just the latest country to post a historic slowdown. It follows India and Brazil earlier in the week as well. John Defterios joins us live now. So, John, I mean, it's the typical sectors. It's hotels, it's restaurants, it's household consumption as well. So what is or should the Reserve Bank mm. of Australia be doing to really help the economy at this time? Well, that's pretty complex, and they're actually not very bullish here in the third quarter and going into the fourth, uh, Zane. But let's say this, COVID-19 strikes again, shall we? Uh, In fact, this is a a deeper surprise because back in the global financial crisis, Australia uh, avoided the recession altogether. Uh, And this time around, we'd say, what, 2020 is an awful year for everyone, even worse for the Aussies. With Remember, they started off with the wildfires, and that led into the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, That undermined tourism, of course. And then we have a very sharp drop in demand for their major commodities in the farming sector and coal. And if you want to top it all off, they're having a trade dispute with its largest trading partner, and that being uh, China. So what happens here? We have consumer consumption, basically a strike down 12% in the quarter, and the manufacturing sector is very slow, and the Reserve Bank of Australia doesn't have a lot to reach out to. And we also have to remember, Zane, that the state of Victoria is officially in a state of disaster because of the cases. And this is the the base, of course, for Melbourne, uh, a major city in Australia. And it's holding back this idea of can we move forward? The consumer sentiment is extremely negative as a result with this very strong second wave. And so, you know, this is a story that we've seen time and time again with a lot of economies around the world suffering because of COVID-19. How does what's happening in Australia compare to the rest of the developed world? Yeah, I think that's worth uh, flagging. It really is worth focusing on because Australia is probably in the league of, say, the largest economy in Europe, and that is uh, being Germany, because it's not having these wild gyrations. It's a pretty steady player with the exception of commodity demand uh, dropping right now. Uh, In fact, the United States had a a worse performance in the second quarter. So did Japan, the UK in a league of its own with that contraction of uh, 20%. And at the beginning of the crisis, I I flagged this because of Brazil and India. I was saying that the emerging markets are going to be suffering severely later on in the game. We have the nearly 4 million cases in Brazil and that contraction overnight of nearly 10%. And then again, India with that contraction of what, nearly 24%. And they added a million COVID cases in a span of 16 days. The strain on their medical systems and the inability to reach into reserves to kind of jumpstart or stimulate growth in the emerging markets is particularly difficult. And especially for those with the high populations like Brazil and India, Zane. A huge surge of cases in India. Uh, We'll keep an eye on it. John Defteria is live for us. Thank you so much. These are the stories making headlines around the world. The father of a black man shot seven times by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, is responding to President Trump's visit to his town. Mr. Trump toured businesses that were damaged during protests and held a public safety roundtable, but did not speak with Jacob Blake's family or even mention Jacob by name. Blake's father said this to CNN. None of my children are chess pieces, and my son is definitely not a pawn, and we're not going to be political. uh, It's not a political uh, way that I'm going to talk about. We're not talking politics. My son is an actual human being, and my son is actually laying in the hospital. My son's name is Jacob Blake. If you didn't mention it, then you don't care about him. 
My son is actually a human being. CNN's Shimon Prokupes is live for us in Kenosha. So, Shimon, was this a real, genuine attempt by the president to actually reach out, or was it just a campaign stop? You know, when you look at what the president did when he came here, it was a photo op. It would seem like a campaign stunt. He only met with uh, business leaders who, uh, whose stores were looted during some of the uh, protests, and then he met with law enforcement. And it would seem he's fully into protecting law enforcement and standing up for law enforcement in this country right now. And that's really what it would appear the whole point of him coming here was for. Um, and as you said, he didn't even mention Jacob Blake's name at all during the time here. He didn't seem to be at all empathetic to the feelings of people about racial injustice, about social injustice, about the fears that they face in dealing with police in their communities. It's all across this country right now. Uh, and we didn't see that side of the president here. He, he simply came in, went and met with business leaders, uh, some store owners, and then went and did a roundtable with law enforcement. And then you had law enforcement, a local sheriff here who's in the middle of all this, praising the president in some ways, saying, we love you and we love the appreciation that you show us. And that was really all yesterday was about here in Kenosha. Yeah, it only serves to sow that much more division. Uh, CNN's Shimon Prokupes, live for us in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Thank you so much. China says no Indian soldiers were killed in a confrontation near the disputed Himalayan border on Saturday. Beijing is accusing India of provocative action, even as military commanders hold talks to defuse tensions. It comes two months after 20 Indian troops were killed in a skirmish, the deadliest clash between both countries in more than 40 years. The trial of 14 people charged in connection with deadly terrorist attacks in Paris got underway today. Five years ago, gunmen rushed the offices of French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo and killed 12 people working there. Over three days, a total of 17 people were killed. All right, coming up here on First Move, can you spot the real from the fake? Microsoft shows us what it's doing to under uncover rather uh, manipulated media and Paradise Island, the Prime Minister of Barbados, tells me why she wants remote workers to live in the Caribbean. Wouldn't that be nice? That's next. All right, welcome back to First Move, coming to you live from New York, where it's still looking like another solid open for U.S. stocks this Wednesday. Investors remain upbeat about the chances for a U.S. economic recovery. We found out yesterday that factory activity surged to a two-year high last month. Factory hiring, however, remains weak. And we found out today that overall private sector hiring is somewhat lackluster as well. ADP reporting that 428,000 private sector jobs were added to the economy uh, overall last month. Many were actually expecting hiring to top 1 million, so we didn't even get close to that. Meantime, Tesla is trying to rebound after yesterday's losses. Tesla fell more than 4% yesterday on word that it will be selling some $5 billion in additional stock. Shares of Zoom are set to pull back in early trading after soaring more than 40% on better-than-expected second-quarter numbers. And shares of online betting site DraftKings are set to rally on word that Michael Jordan will actually be joining the company as a special advisor. Joining me now, John Petridas, the Portfolio Manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. Uh, John, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start by talking about stimulus uh, specifically, because these talks are happening between Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin. Um, the Senate Republicans want spending 
to top roughly around $1 trillion. That is what they're putting on the table right now. Is that enough, do you think, just given how much the economy has suffered in the last six months? Well, I think the size of the stimulus package all depends on when the vaccine is going to get distributed. And, and we won't know the answer until after the fact, because we need the stimulus to provide liquidity to, uh, to small businesses and people who are unemployed to help bridge the gap until a vaccine is distributed and to the point where you and I and everyone else feels comfortable getting back to some sense of normalcy and comfortable spending money again. So, you know, I, I, I'm right now in the camp of bigger is better. Um, because we don't know uh, when the, the vaccine will be approved and distributed. And I do think we need to fill the gap. Um, but, you know, we won't know until retro it's in retrospect. And I think right now, you know, there's a massive game of political football going on um, as the election, as we're on the eve of the election. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We don't actually know. However, Dr. Anthony Fauci um, seems to believe that it is possible. There's no guarantees, but it is possible that we could actually see a vaccine by the end of the year. If that is the case, do you think one trillion dollars is enough? Well, you you would see. Well, hold on. You'd see an approval for a vaccine, but that doesn't right. mean it's going to be distributed, right? So there's a difference, right? right, right. You know, and, and the market will react positively, clearly, to the approval of a vaccine before year end. But we still have to get the logistics of it getting distributed, so we all feel comfortable again. And that, you know, is, I would assume. You know, I'm not in the in the healthcare field or in the vaccine field, but I would assume a year from now, under that scenario, is when we would all be rolling out va uh, vaccinations. Then the question goes to, you know, who who does that get? Um, you know, you know, what's the pecking order uh, of who gets uh, vaccinated first? Uh, now, stocks will react way ahead of that, and that'll be a good news for stocks. But in terms of the amount of stimulus and, and when that gets distributed, you know, that's the the goal is to bridge the gap until we 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 can get the vaccine distributed to the masses. Okay, so in the meantime, though, what, what are we looking at? We're looking at unemployment at around 10% or so. We're looking at initial jobless claims at around 1 million. Um, when the stimulus does come, what do you think is the greatest need? What area do you think is the most important in terms of really propping up the economy, especially given that, you know, the American economy runs on consumption? Is it unemployment yeah. insurance? Is it small business PPP? What are your thoughts? Yeah. For me, it's all about supporting the small business. Uh, for me, because when you support the small business, then they have the ability to keep their businesses running. Uh, they can do, uh, they can judge the sense of hiring based on demand for their own their own businesses. Having that extra cash flow helps the landlord. So there's a massive trickle down effect by supporting the small businesses. I'd rather see that than more unemployment insurance, because you know if the data is accurate, you know when we were receiving uh, unemployment insurance of $600 per week. That was more than what many people were actually making, at least on the service side of the economy. And if you were making more from sitting at home getting a check, it doesn't uh, offer you any incentive to get off the couch to go find uh, a job. Uh, so I would be more, I'm definitely more in the favor of supporting small businesses or businesses in general to give them the cash flow to then uh, do what they can to pay rent to help landlords and or use that to, to offer in hiring uh, as demand hopefully continues to increase from here. Uh, let's talk about markets, because obviously, you know, a lot of people find it somewhat strange that despite what's happening in the broader U.S. economy and despite what's happening on Main Street, um, you know, we are in record high territories. So do you anticipate that, just given that we have more than just over 60 days until the U.S. election, do you anticipate the market is going to get that much more volatile before uh, November 3rd? 
Yeah, you know, the way that I see the, the, the stock market going right now, it's like the REM song, it's the end of the world as I know it and I feel fine. Because that's how it feels right now uh, uh, with stocks continuing to rally, but the global economy is really sucking wind. I mean, I would ex expect uh, an, an uptick in volatility before year end. And listen, uh, that could be to the upside or to the downside. And what I mean by that is uh, the, the, the biggest thing staring at his face is clearly the U.S. election. And I think the best outcome or the outcome the market would respond most favorably to is probably a Biden uh, winning the presidency, a Republican winning the Senate. Um, and, and that probably uh, prevents a rise in corporate taxes. And I think that's the best outcome. I think that's the outcome that the market would respond most favorably to. Um, I would expect social unrest to happen the day after the election or soon after, regardless of uh, who the who the winner is. Uh, that's just, you know, we're in a divided nation right now, uh, socially. Um, and then obviously, if Dr. Fauci's right, and or and we can get a vaccine approved before year end, clearly, that's very, very positive. And then, you know, what's standing the next sort of wall of worry, the biggest issue staring us in the face is, you know, is there a resurgence of COVID in the fall and winter uh, that would force the economy to roll back? Uh, you know, these steps that we've taken to open the economy, do they roll backward? Because uh, cases increase and the pressure on the hospital utilization is so great that governors feel compelled to 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 roll back the opening to to free up the hospitals from from being from having a repeat of what we saw in the spring. So yeah, I mean, uh, you know, going forward to close out the year, I would I would expect the volatility to pick up. Yeah, I mean, there's so much uncertainty, everything from the vaccine to surgeon cases, you know, the potential surgeon cases to the outcome and, of the election. So many unknowns. Uh, but John Petrudas, we have to leave it there. Uh, okay. Appreciate you joining us. All right, you are watching First Move. The Market Open is next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday, as expected. We've got a higher open for U.S. stocks with the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq rising to fresh record highs. All this as a new survey shows that private sector hiring rising by a weaker than expected 428,000 last month. Today's numbers point out once again the urgent need for more U.S. fiscal stimulus. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin is urging congressional leaders to resolve their differences and pass a new uh, bill soon. But both sides have not met in weeks. Stocks in the news today include retailers Macy's. Its shares are rallying after reporting a narrower than expected second quarter loss. Online sales were a bright spot, uh, rising by more than 50 percent. Macy's is hardly out of the woods uh, in terms of retail. Same store sales fell by more than 30 percent. Uh, Paula Monica joins us live now. So really, the key to Macy's uh, continued success or survival is in the online sales sector, that growing more than 50 percent. Yeah, this is a strong number for Macy's, which has lagged many other retailers in making that transition Zane, from a predominantly mall-centric bricks-and-mortar retailer to one where people are going to shop digitally. I mean, you look at companies like Walmart and Target, for example, they've done a much, more, uh, much better job of embracing digital trends to catch up to Amazon than you know, companies like Macy's has. The thing that's good for Macy's is that their numbers are much better than bankrupt JCPenney's, obviously, as well as Nordstrom, which is really struggling, too. So I think Macy's isn't out of the woods, as you said, but there are some hopeful, encouraging signs. And uh, let's talk about Kodak, because um, hedge fund uh, D.E. Shore is actually investing in Kodak. They actually took a stake in the company as they pivot to pharmaceuticals. Do you think that this is just 
you know, this hedge fund just trying to make a big, a quick buck in Kodak? Or is it, do they actually see long-term value in the stock? Yeah, I would guess saying that it's probably the former than the latter. The company didn't elaborate on why it's taking the stake. It does appear to be a passive, not active stake. So it doesn't seem as if D.E. Shaw is taking issue with Kodak's strategy, which is on hold, by the way, because concerns about insider selling, you know, the uh, you know, federal government has put that loan to uh, Kodak on hold uh, regarding some of the uh, expansion Kodak wants to do to make more uh, drugs. So I think D.E. Shaw maybe sees a beaten down stock that could pop because even though Kodak is still up phenomenally this year, it's trading around $7.50 now a share. That's well below the $60 a share that it rose to in that immediate feeding frenzy that we saw when traders were just going out of their minds buying this stock after the government loan news first came out at the end of July. All right, Paul and Monica, live for us there. Thank you so much. Earlier in the show, we heard Facebook claim that Russia is targeting Americans again. Now, Microsoft is helping users to spot deep fake videos and disinformation as well. It says that over six years, 96 foreign influence campaigns targeting 30 countries have been documented. 93% of them included the creation of original content. 74% of the campaigns distorted verifiable facts. Microsoft now has the tools to give a confidence score on whether media is real or not. Uh, it also is allowing content creators to add a digital certificate proving where it was made. Tom Burt is vice president of customer security and trust at Microsoft. He joins us live now. So just walk us through how this technology to combat disinformation actually works. Sure. The technology works in two important different ways. Video Authenticator is the technology that we announced yesterday that enables um, a confidence score uh, to be created by scanning a video or other image and evaluating whether it has been altered by artificial intelligence or not. So we're actually looking at the data behind the image and looking for indicators that that um, image has been modified through the use of these artificial intelligence engines that can be used to create these deep fakes, videos that appear to uh, put a person in a place or have someone saying something that they never said in a place they never were. And, and so what are the challenges? Because obviously with some of these deep fake videos that they're, they're using AI, it becomes very, very difficult um, for even a company like Microsoft to sometimes catch up. How hard is it always to really know whether or not it's real or fake? It's really difficult to know whether it's real or fake. And that's why we've partnered with a Reality Defender 2020 to, to contribute our technology, our video authenticator technology, to a group of other technologies that that organization is using to make available to media, to campaigns, so that they can um, try to determine and help educate their, their viewers or their voters um, as to what is authentic and what has in fact been modified and is a deep fake. But these technologies, these detection technologies like our video authenticator, in the long run, the artificial intelligence that creates deep fakes will defeat those detection technologies. Between now and the election, we think that video authenticator and the other technologies can provide a useful service, but 
ultimately what we will need is what we are powering with our other technology announcement, which is actually being able to authenticate and track authentic media from the time of its creation. And we're doing that with a new technology. We're working together with um, a number of leading uh, uh, media companies, including the BBC, New York Times, CBC, on Project Origin, where technology that we've created can actually create a, a digital watermark on the video when it's first created and track it through the process of being legitimately edited and so forth, so that when then uh, someone views that video, the software that shows you the video will be able to report whether that video has been altered in some unauthorized way. And we see that as the longer term solution, um, while the short term solution for this election cycle is video authenticator. Right. And, and j just quickly, I mean, obviously you're unveiling this uh, a couple of months before the U.S. election. Do you think that if this technology had been available or you had unveiled this four years ago before the 2016 election, that it actually would have made somewhat of a difference? It's possible, although at the time of 2016, these deep fake technologies were not as well developed and that was not as significant a part of the disinformation campaigns that we saw then. But we do expect to see, you know, our adversaries using these kinds of deep fake technologies in this election cycle. So we think it's really important that people be aware of that and encourage people to go take the quiz that we've put up um, on online, which will help educate you um, whether or not what you're seeing is a deep fake or not. You can get to that at stopdeepfakes.org. Stop um, it's actually kind of fun, and you'll see some examples of some very sophisticated deep fakes and some, some clues to help you as a viewer determine whether what you're seeing is real or fake. All right. Uh, Tom Bird, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Zane. German automaker Daimler revealing its new Mercedes-Benz S-Class. The luxury vehicle is packed with major technology upgrades, including various AI features. Our Richard Quest talked to the CEO of Daimler. The S-Class is the flagship of the Mercedes portfolio. So, of course, our engineers, they really want to improve the vehicle in all dimensions. And safety has always been something that the Mercedes-Benz brand has stood for. And the feature that you just mentioned is just one of these many little angels that takes care of you. If you, God forbid, end up in an accident, you want the vehicle to give you maximum protection. This will be the vehicle, the first vehicle in the world with an airbag actually for somebody sitting in the back seat. So, so many features are going into the S-Class that are designed to protect you or protect the people around you. AI and the IoT is, is at the core of many of these changes. And again, cybersecurity, I know you must have answered this a million times, but cybersecurity and the ability to enhance or to, to protect the security of these systems. Surely it's a matter of time before there's a major compromise. A vehicle like the S-Class, you could almost say it's a supercomputer on wheels. Uh, so of course, uh, with a car where we have more than 30 million lines of code for all the sophisticated technology and functions that we have in this vehicle, cybersecurity is very important. Uh, when it comes to how you technically address that, companies and us alike uh, tend to be quiet about it. But of course, we pay uh, attention uh, to the highest level of security when we put a sophisticated technical product like this into the market. It's an extraordinary uh, story. And, uh, you know, one's tempted to always ask you, 
did you consider delaying the launch of this car? Nobody wants to have a major launch in the middle of a pandemic. But I guess you get to the point where you've got to do it sometime. So were there those discussions? When we sat here in March and we looked at the project and said we have the last six months, the final stretch of this project, uh, really to get uh, across the finish line. And at the same time, parts of the company is in lockdown. Some people are in home office. How do you do it? And here I really have to applaud uh, the team, the engineering team, the project team around the S-Class. They had the ingenuity, the flexibility, all the passion to keep this project on time. So we're launching uh, according to our original schedule and the reaction that we have had from uh, customers and fans around the world, people really are waiting for this car. So I'm very proud uh, that we're on time. And you can actually watch more of that interview on Quest Means Business at 3 p.m. in New York, 8 p.m. if you're watching from London. All right, coming up here on First Move, work from home in a Caribbean paradise. Uh, how one nation is attracting remote workers during the global pandemic. That's next. The Caribbean nation of Barbados has launched a new program to attract work from home foreigners. The Barbados Welcome Stamp actually allows visitors to stay on the island visa-free for up to one year. This as the coronavirus pandemic hits Barbados tourism industry, which accounts for a big part of the country's economy. Joining us live now is the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. Uh, Mia, thank you so much uh, for being with us. So, you know, even though Barbados so hasn't really had that many cases, only about a, a hundred, I think less than a hundred, actually. Um, how hard has this pandemic been on your country's tourism sector? We've actually had a little more than that, but most of our cases, almost um, more than 90 percent have been imported. Um, our tourism sector has been affected largely because all travel stopped really at the end of March largely because of the quarantine mechanisms which countries were putting in place. And of course, while we've had some limited resumption since the end of July, um, middle of July, it's, it's really not anywhere near what we're accustomed to, probably about 15% of our normal load. So it's been extremely difficult for, for us and all other travel-dependent countries in the region. Um, the Caribbean, as you know, is the most travel-dependent region in the world. So we're not only facing the direct impact of COVID, we're facing the consequences of COVID, which are far greater for us than the actual impact of COVID. But Prime Minister Motley, do you fear that perhaps with this, uh, uh, this uh, sort of tourism, this, this initiative that you're proposing, inviting more tourists into the country, that the number of cases and the number of deaths will only rise? I like the sound of Mia better. Please call me Mia. Okay. Um, no, we, we recognize that we have to put measures in place, and we've been very, very careful about the measures that we've put in place. We change the protocols every two weeks because it's a dynamic situation. There are countries that move into high risk. There are countries that drop from high to medium or low. We have different protocols for each. We have designated hotels, designated villas for quarantine. We have a second test applied for persons who come in um, from high-risk countries just to make sure, and medium risk, to make sure they're all right. High-risk countries have to quarantine for seven days. Um, if they do the second test, if they don't do the second test, they'll do the full 14-day quarantine. And it's been working very well. Um, we have had, um, I would say, four or five days a week. We may get one or two or three imported cases, um, but no more than um, about 10 on average in a week. Um, so that 
you know, we know that the, the, the virus is across the global community. Barbados is a member of the global community. We cannot isolate ourselves fully from it. We are an island. And it's the same with all of the other countries, St. Lucia, Grenada, St. Vincent, Bermuda, Jamaica, Trinidad, all of us. So we face the same reality and, and we have to learn to live with it. And our people, quite frankly, have been very responsive for the most part, very responsible. Um, but it's a difficult moment. And, and the shadow of COVID for us will live much longer than COVID, um, largely because of how it has decimated the tourism sector. Um, and that's why we introduced the stamp quite frankly, because we recognize that short-term tourism isn't going to work easily in these times with the safety protocols that we have to put in place. And just quickly, if you're inviting people from, let's say, Brazil, the United States, even India, um, which all, of th all three of which have a high number of cases, I understand the various policies and the fact that they have to quarantine for a certain number of time. But even after that, is social distancing mandatory? Is mask wearing mandatory? Yeah. Uh, we haven't made mask wearing mandatory, but for the most part, we've said to everyone and we strongly encourage mask wearing in public places and Barbadians, for the most part, are responding to it. Um, we've also indicated that physical distancing, if you can't physical distance, um, then you absolutely have to wear your mask. And, and the... And, the country has a high degree of citizenship engagement, and we're grateful for that. And um, I think that those of you who visit here will recognize that this is a place where you can be comfortable, where you can okay. be safe. But yes, okay. you will uh, have to comply. Me, me, unfortunately, we, we run out of time. But thank you so much for coming on the program. And uh, I wish you best of luck with this initiative. Thank you so much, Mia Motley, no, Prime Minister of Barbados. So. Of course, COVID-19 is impacting economies around the world, hitting some industries harder than others and jeopardizing decades of progress for women in the workplace. We'll have more on that after the break. Right, more than 14 million Americans are out of work, and that means millions are facing eviction because they simply can't pay their rent. That's why Congress and the White House remain deadlocked over how to provide more financial relief. Vanessa Jokiewicz looks at how the political standoff is impacting women. On the streets of Harlem, signs of business on life support. It's been like a ghost town out here. Tammy Treadwell is back with her food cart, Harlem Seafood Soul, after five months off the street. Harlem Seafood Soul. What got you back out here on the street again? Needing to be able to feed my family. Months into the pandemic, millions are still out of work and more than 100,000 small businesses have closed. Treadwell says she applied for grants from the city and a PPP loan, but hasn't received either. The responses that I've gotten is, is that there isn't enough money, or try back again, maybe some additional funding will become available, or you just don't hear anything back at all. But even with a PPP loan, for some, it didn't go far. As it was designed, we ran out of that money um, a, a little bit longer than eight weeks it lasted, but, it, but still, we are pa way past that eight-week point. Luisa Santos opened Lulu's Ice Cream six years ago in Miami. She immigrated to the U.S. from Colombia for the American dream. Now she's cutting her salary to keep her employees on part-time, and she's hoping Congress will pass a third stimulus bill for her small business. We are not in a good place uh, in our economy, and what we need is support to get through the rough patch. But the U.S. jobs recovery is stalling. 
Less than 50% of the 22 million jobs lost in March and April are back online. More than a million people have filed for unemployment each week except one since mid-March. And the extra $600 a week in unemployment benefits have expired. I'm behind in my rent like everybody else. We're food insecure like everybody else. Still, some parts of the U.S. economy are thriving. U.S. tech companies have recovered, and then some. The top five in the U.S. are now worth a collective $7 trillion. But there's a disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. While stocks are hitting records, up to 40 million Americans could face eviction by the end of the year without a new stimulus bill. If you leave us out, we're going to have barren streets. The economy is not going to get back up and running because we are the lifeblood of Main Street America. Again. The pandemic is also exposing a harsh reality for women of color. The highest rate of unemployment is among Latina workers. Thank you so much. And black women in jobs deemed essential to COVID-19 recovery make up to 27 percent less than white men. We are being affected more significantly than than other business owners, and we need that support. I know for a fact as a black woman that there has been a social economic disadvantage for us for as long as I can remember. Please think about the street vendors who are out here who are really just trying to make a good, honest living. This is why a stimulus bill is so critical, because it can address various parts of the economy. It can help freeze evictions, help with student debt, unemployment, and give money to small businesses. And when you put money into the hands of everyday Americans, they're more likely to spend, and that helps stimulate the economy and provide more jobs. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, CNN, New York. Yeah, a lot of people desperately need financial help right now. All right, that is it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. Thank you so much for watching. I'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.